0: all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim and welcome one and all to episode 147 of the SLS cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be but of course nothing less than the maximum break episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that in snooker under normal circumstances amassing all 15 reds with 15 blacks followed by all six colors in snooker is the maximum break of one four seven and with that little bit of snooker knowledge I, of course, am Mad coming to us from the lovely land of California. It is, of course, our resident Sony employee.
1: Tim, who has no idea what schnooker is. Is it a type of jam? jam. Oh. <laughs> so it's something you don't eat. It's something you don't spread on on toast or 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 buns. Hot buns. Mm. To give it some flavor. Man, it, it, this, this bun could really use some schnooker. So it's a game. It, what kind of game? Do older people play it? Or is it a game that young folk are obligated to play with the elderly?
0: Mm, gonna say no. At least in that regard. It is a uh, popular game. It is a, as I said, it's a billiard style game. The table is larger. The pockets are smaller. And you play with a uh, set of red balls as I described before some black balls and then some colored balls and they're laid out in patterns and the idea is that you have to hit the if I remember correctly you have to hit the red balls in first or you or maybe you alternate between the red and the black I can't remember but one black ball becomes like a spotter and every time it goes in it comes back out and so the idea is that you use like the black ball to set you up for the next red and so on and so forth, until just the colored balls remain, you knock those in, and every time you do so, you get x amount of points for it and
1: so it's a billiard game that uh you actually have to know what you're doing. You can't bullshit oh, your yeah. way through it like you can with pool
0: not even a little bit, no you must be good at it yeah
1: are you are you good at
0: it? No
1: no never played <laughs> see you're supposed to say yes man i'm i'm awesome i've won many of many of tournaments
0: no I've, I've i've won nine ball tournaments and i can play eight ball as you have seen but other than that no schnooker for
1: me no schnooker for you on that note how is your past week better than the better than the previous week i hope cuz it was it sounded quite depressing last episode. Yeah, I had kind of a shitty week
0: the previous uh week of our last recording. But this week was okay and over the weekend got to hang out via Skype with my midnight movie night friends and of course Johnny White Trash and Revel Stoke Jim. I was up till very very late into the wee hours of the morning drinking surprise also, surprise <laughs> I don't generally do that actually it was actually kind of nice to <laughs> yeah. drink with some friends Matt, Matt just likes to sit in front of Skype and Skype. just
1: hoping that somebody <laughs> will log in so he can quickly call him.
0: exactly they can't get away from me and no we had a great time though talked about all sorts of fun stuff I, I had a uh, Twitter argument with Johnny White trash that we were able to carry over into our conversation on Skype, and then even after everyone else had left, it was just he and I arguing for even hours after that, and it was fun. Also made some new friends on Twitter uh, with uh, the highly recommended show, and listened to them, and I was definitely uh, enjoying what I had been listening to. Uh, some there's some fellas out of London. England, because apparently there are other Londons in the world, so I needed to specify. And yeah, so I got to talk, chat with them on Twitter a little bit, and it was it was pretty good. Work was good over the weekend, and school worked out nicely. And yeah, you had a little kick in your step.
1: It sounds. <laughs>
0: we'll we'll go with that we'll go with that what about what about you? what about oh, you? Oh you
1: know my past week was was rather eventful uh yesterday i well actually not yesterday a couple days ago this past Saturday evening, I went with actually a friend of mine from Houston was randomly in town for a good friend's bachelor party and wedding, and so he had all of Saturday night free before his six a m flight the next morning, so he was just planning on staying out and doing whatever. And uh, I was already planning on going to the New Beverly Cinema, which is Quentin Tarantino's theater, because they were doing a Grindhouse double feature of Paul Newman movies. Uh, the two Paul Newman flicks were HUD, followed by The Hustler. So I introduced him to Tarantino's movie theater, The New Beverly, and actually I introduced him to two movies that were outside of his regular you know, type of movies that he would normally watch. And it was fantastic, and I highly recommend you guys, if you've never seen a Paul Newman movie in the theater, you got to go check it out. It's fun. So that was my Saturday night. Went to uh, the New Beverly, then we went over to the Formosa Cafe, which is a very well-known, famous Hollywood uh, historical landmark of a building. I mean, they have a booth there that back in the 50s or 60s, John Wayne would get so drunk that he would just pass out there in the booth. And back in the day, well, actually, now there are are laws in restaurants to where the table can only be a certain length away from the booth itself. Well, because John Wayne would pass out in that booth, the table was kind of moved a little bit further away from the booth so he could, you know, somewhat be comfortable while sleeping there. But the law has been very forgiving towards that little technicality due to the fact that the Formosa Cafe is still owned, at least by the family of the original owners. So that was pretty cool. So we did that, and that was my that's my neighborhood little bar and restaurant. But two other things that I've never done before. To welcome in the fall and autumn season, we made... Pumpkin bread, which is delicious, but I made, in a crock pot, bread pudding. Matt, have you ever made bread pudding in a crock pot before? No. Have you ever made bread pudding, period? No. Do you like bread pudding? No. Well, I made it, and it was good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have... I have nothing to add to this portion of the
1: conversation, <laughs> and, and that was my welcoming into the autumn season. But w- the the most exciting thing that I did, though, that to me at least tops seeing two fantastic Paul Newman flicks, was last Thursday. Uh, the GF, because we're hip like that here in here in LA, the GF took me to the LA Opera at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And, our, or is it Dorothy Chandler Pavilion? Dorothy Chandler something, whatever the place is called. The Dorothy Chandler Opera? I don't know. But the LA Opera, Placido Domingo, who is a tenor that I absolutely love. He's one of the three tenors, along with Pavarotti and Jose Carreras, back in the early 90s, mid-90s. They did a, a few very popular shows together. And growing up with my grandfather, for those who might not know, uh, he was a semi-well-known singer about town for a while during the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And I grew up listening to classical music, and especially Pavarotti and Placido Domingo. And it, it has been my dream to see Placido and Jose Carreras. And once I found out, and it was actually about two years ago when I found out that Placido was the director of the L.A. Opera. I kind of shit my pants. But I never really found the time, nor the money, to be able to go see one of his operas. And it turns out that the G.F. surprised me. And she took me to a double feature, I guess. Well, I guess a grindhouse style of uh, of operas that evening. So it was uh, Gianni uh, Shichi and the second opera, which Placido conducted, was Pagliacci, which I'm sure... You know, everybody knows that song about, you know, the clown putting on makeup, and he stops, and he's singing that really heavy, depressing song. It's something along the lines of, Feed me gazpacho! But he's not saying, Feed me gazpacho, but it's something-something Pagliacci, or Pagliaccio, or something like that. But it was fantastic, and I highly recommend also, in addition to seeing Paul Newman movies at the movie theater, go and see an opera every once in a while, because... These people are singing. They're not miked. If they're in a proper opera house, they are not miked whatsoever. And by God, the sets are brilliant. They're beautiful. And the art of the human voice singing this type of music is absolutely spellbinding. So just had to mention all that. Check them out. So, yeah, that was my week. Wow.
0: Sounds very culturally satisfying.
1: It was very cultural satisfying. I got a cultural enema this past week. <laughs> a cultural colonic. Yummy. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Well, cool. Then I guess why don't we go ahead and jump to some mail in our email. We
1: actually have mail, huh?
0: Well, we have Twitter followers to mention. Oh, well, No, no mail. Well, I mean,
1: we do get a mail, uh, get email, though, like saying, hey... You do have new follower. I I, exactly. I not say followers, but normally it's just a follower. But well, it's you know. two this time. That's it's good. Two. Yeah. So it wasn't Diana just unfriending and then friending us again. <laughs>
0: no, I think Twitter's on door, so <laughs> she, she's not she's not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, yeah, let's see here. I have got uh, uh, we we check our mail here. It's the show at slscast.com. So, yeah. then again, two Twitter followers. We have Mel W. At Caper Girl Mel. Dog groomer. Yep, that's right. I shave dogs' asses. Also a geek for TV, movies, games, comics, beer, music. The list continues to grow. Smiley face. From Canada. Thank you very much for following us. That's r- ridiculously cool of you. And I'm glad that you get to shave dogs' asses. I I didn't know that before. Cause I've talked to her on Twitter. That I've is a thing on that you Twitter. can do? She, yeah, she's a, she was actually a follower of mine, and we were chatting one day. And, and I was like, oh, well, hey, if you listen to uh, our show or whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, actually, I have listened. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, clearly because you only listened the one time. I see we didn't do very well. And so we were chatting a little bit more. And and then I guess she's listened again. So woohoo! Thank you, Mel, for giving us a follow. That's awesome. And then, of course, as previously mentioned... And I apologize if if, if, if Matt
1: guilt-tripped you into following us. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: is entirely possible. Uh, But Highly Recommended has also followed us. So they are at The High Show. In, these are the who, this, these are who I was referring to from before, from London, England. Highly Recommended Show.com by at Boulamont and at diano underscore Peppers. The guys that brought you the Tits podcast now bring you more of the same under a different name. <laughs> and it turns out that apparently we are definitely just communitying it up. Because now they're also followed by Revelstoke Jim and... Johnny White trash so it's it seems like we're just turning into this big incestuous pool that includes Finland England now Canada and the United States
1: that does not sound kinky whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> like I, I think because it's podcasting it's totally acceptable but I think if we were all in a room unclothed it might be a little weird all righty <laughs>
0: so at any rate though thank you very much guys for giving us a follow and again thank you mel for the follow as well and if you would like to follow us on twitter for fun and shits and giggles if you're not already sending us email to the show at slscast.com you can simply follow us on twitter at the slscast so hey that was kind of an organic way to work that in and without anything else to do i guess you want to go ahead and jump to the news sure yes please All right, here we go, folks. It is the news And first up from me from Hollywoodreporter dot com by way of Eric Gardner. Happy birthday! Copyright ruled to be invalid. A judge grants summary judgment to a filmmaker challenging Warner Chappell's copyright to a song more than a century old. According to the opinion on Tuesday from U.S. District Court... I didn't wait, I can read. According to the opinion on Tuesday from U.S. District Judge George H. King, quote, Because Summy Company never acquired the rights to the Happy Birthday lyrics, defendants as Summy Company's purported successors and interests do not own a valid copyright in the Happy Birthday lyrics. And Quote, the ruling means that Warner Chapel will lose out on $2 million a year in reported revenue on the song, unless something happens at an appellate court or unless someone else comes forward with a valid claim of ownership to the song. Filmmakers like director Jennifer Nelson, who sued in 2013 over demands as much as six figures to license, will no longer have to pay to feature Happy Birthday in motion pictures and television shows. This is something that has been going on and on for... I'm going to stop the article there, just in the interest of time. Not that you would know, but it's late for us right now. The This is something that's been going on for a long, long time, because the song itself was penned. It's not just something that has been organically uh, down through the generations in, in the way of oral storytelling, and that's, you know, you just wake up one day and you're coherent to the world now and it's like your fourth birthday party and you're like hey happy birthday too I, and then that's just what you've always known and it's actually that's why whenever you go to the restaurants they don't sing you happy birthday they sing whatever stupid song they come up with hey happy happy go and do this because it's your birthday fucking and everything else and whatever it's because they can't sing happy birthday it's against it's against copyright law And this has actually gone in such ridiculous extremes occasionally that there have been plays performed on Broadway where they were able to get around the lyrical side of it, but not the musical side of it. And so the person actually just says happy birthday to you on stage while presenting a birthday cake instead of singing the song. I I really and truly think that this is probably a win overall because copyright law, while I think you should be protected, is really gotten completely out of hand. And it's now like your life plus 70 years, plus whatever corporate interests, plus whoever else can lay claim to it, plus anything that you say, ever do, what have you, in any form of media automatically becomes your... It's... It's ridiculous. And the balance has been lost in being able to protect your work and be able to monetize that. To You can't even sing happy birthday in a restaurant. So for me, I think this is a win. What do you think, Tim? Or do you think that they're just going to go ahead and appeal and it's not going to matter
1: anyway or what? Let people just sing the damn song. I mean... It's it's obvious. I mean, everybody sings it. There are people that probably wake up every day and sing it on their way to work because that's what makes them that's what makes them feel better about themselves. If it feels like it's their birthday every day, so why not just <laughs> let those people go on living like that without having to hide away from the from the law? You know, they're 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 living on the edge every day because they want every day to be their birthday. Just give him that. Just give him that.
0: I'm telling you that I mean literally the song was developed by two sisters back in the late 19th century. So nearly 230 years ago. <laughs> I am mean, sorry, 130 years ago. Yeah. I am fairly certain people, <laughs> we've gotten enough money out of this song for the people who needed to make money. Uh all so, right, wait, well, what, what do you got what for if, us so, I mean hmm. like
1: I'm wondering if a unique way to get past the copyright law like if this ever continues it's kind of like whenever you were when we were kids and one would say like "fuh" and the other one would say Kuh, you know so you know fuck would be spelled out but you were using two different people now what if you sung happy birthday but it was like happy birthday, birthday. Just kind of back and forth among you know two between two or three four people.
0: I think it would still count as collaborative, and therefore all of the people involved would be. But what
1: if you were like nonchalantly like somebody was washing something, <laughs> we, you know, trying to deal some sense eight shit in here. Some <laughs> <laughs> somebody sweeping the floor, and and just so happens they kind of decided to finish each other's words. But that I guess that would make for a very weird birthday party. Uh, Everybody, pretend you're doing something and follow along. At any rate, two uh, bits of pieces that go well along with each other. They both pertain to box office grosses. The first one here, both from Deadline.com, Mission Accomplished in China. This is from last week, actually. Rogue Nation is now the highest grossing 2D film in China. This here is written by Anthony D'Alessandro and Nancy Tartaglione. Tart- Tartagilone. 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 See, I went to the opera. That doesn't mean I know how to speak Italian. Anyways, it says this. Paramount Sky Dance's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation has rocketed past Interstellar as the highest-grossing 2D Hollywood film ever at the Chinese box office. The Tom Cruise star has earned $124 million since its Middle Kingdom release on September 8th. That tops the $122 million dollar Christopher Nolan's Space Epic made their last year. It also marks a milestone for e-commerce giant Alibaba, whose Alibaba Pictures made its first Hollywood investment with the Actioneer. The film previously had set a record as the biggest 2D opener in China with $18 The fifth installment is now tallied at $650 million worldwide. Again, this was this past week, so it's even more than that. It's higher now. Uh, this has been a big year for Hollywood in China, where Universal's Furious 7 made $380.9 million, and it was the top-grossing film of all time until just this month, when it was unsettled by local pick Monster Hunt, $385 million. The record for MI5 comes just before another local movie, Lost in Hong Kong, which is due to bow on September 25th, and likely set records of its own let's see around the globe mi5 has opened at number one in the us korea uk mexico australia spain russia argentina france brazil and italy and achieved franchise breaking numbers in brazil mexico malaysia russia ukraine venezuela india taiwan philippines thailand sweden turkey indonesia poland and hong kong uh and the article goes on for there but it's interesting talking about this Because a lot of people don't understand how important the Chinese market really is when it comes to Hollywood movies. Because we're also competing with local films as well in China. And that is also attested to the competition because China only allows a certain number of big American Hollywood movies in to be shown throughout the year. And normally, it's 3D movies so it's interesting and it's 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 fun to see uh like Mission Impossible and Fast and Furious go to make vast amounts of money over in China. And it also goes to show you what kind of or the type of culture uh the the Hollywood pop culture, American pop culture that they're really yearning for and kind of grabbing onto, which is pretty interesting. And next up I just wanted to mention Sony movie news here. Hotel Transylvania 2 at $48.5 million, Mark's record opening for Adam Sandler. Intern slacks on Sunday, Monday postmortem. This is written by Anthony D'Alessandro again. This is from Deadline.com again. Sony has officially reported that Hotel Transylvania 2's opening weekend is $48.46 million, which makes it Adam Sandler's highest grossing, Opening of his career on a FSS basis, pegging above 2005's The Longest Yard with 47.6 million. The animated sequel fanged a slew of records, and the article goes on from there, talking about uh, the Warner Brothers release of The Intern, which did okay but not great. So that's good news for Sony. I mean, Sony really needed a big movie and this one bodes well. I mean, I can't tell you how many kids loved Hotel Transylvania. I, Matt and I don't really care about these movies at all, though I can understand the charm of it just based on hotel T, to, you know, the trailers and clips that I've seen and whatnot. So hopefully from here on out, Sony's box office will be a little bit better seeing that the walk is coming out this week and, Get goosebumps coming out and concussion next year so yeah
0: that's it cool all right well i'm gonna go ahead and uh do two pieces of news and close it out real fast the first one is is kind of an accidental announcement this one comes from uh frusain.com and i do not see a direct attribution here for that and it's basically keanu reeves returns as john wick to begins filming this fall they accidentally fundamental films accidentally revealed it while they were plugging thunder road <laughs> and they just kind of accidentally threw it in there so there you go it's official keanu reeves comes back john wick 2 happening filming begins this fall and last up for me from inquisitor.com by way of alap naik desai Kirk Douglas didn't make the inaugural Hall of Fame at his own hometown. "Quote, his name never came up." It's kind of sad. Kirk Douglas was left out of the inaugural Hall of Fame list that his high school drew up. With high schools coming up with With high schools coming up with, yeah, that's actually what it says here, folks. With high schools coming up with or revising their Hall of Fame lists, Amsterdam High School, too, thought of making one from this year onward. However, the school strangely introduced a vague caveat. Inductees must have, quote, distinguished themselves by their contribution in their field of work, study, or athletics, end quote. And at the end of the day, I am not really sure how that doesn't, apply to kirk douglas Uh, the school superintendent was quoted as saying you know his name was not nominated i don't know his name never came up end quote and um he also added quote there were probably a lot of other people who could have or should have been nominated end quote I, i mean i realize this is i mean it's kind of small time but how the hell do you not recognize one of Hollywood's last remaining Golden Age living icons? I mean, how does that even happen? Uh, what do you think, Tim? Is that, is that... Are they just trying to cover their snub? Or did maybe they just not realize that Kirk Douglas's name wasn't Kirk Douglas when he was in high school?
1: You know, it very well could have been them covering themselves, but I have a feeling that one of the faculty members there is just so goddamn jealous of young Michael Douglas back when they were friends and Michael Douglas went off to be super famous and Joe, faculty member, just ended up being Joe, faculty counselor. Are you talking about
0: Kirk Douglas? Oh, did I say. You said Michael Douglas. That's his son.
1: Yeah, Kirk Douglas. Well, well then, never mind. I thought we were talking about Michael Douglas for some reason. Well, then, I guess the. They're dead, so I mean, Kurt Douglas is not dead. Kurt, no, but the fa- Joe faculty member might be. Oh, <laughs> maybe he's a donor. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's he's like, oh, I'm gonna get Kurt back. Yeah, he that wouldn't pick me and P E.
0: We 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 made a goof a few weeks ago when we were talking about Labor Day. We we both referred to it as Memorial.
1: Day. Oh, really? I, I do that regardless. I mean, I get the two of them confused.
0: yeah Memorial Day's first, and it's about the troops and remembering those who passed away in battle, fighting for a country or serving our country, and Labor Day is just, yeah, it's yeah, celebrate working in America, I guess, by theoretically not working <laughs> Anyway, but that's my news. there you go that's that is my news, sir. Bring us home with whatever news you see fit.
1: Tim has been experiencing technical difficulties. Luckily, the recording stopped before you. Ca- oh, actually, no, it did catch some of my 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 angry rants. So, for your listening pleasure, enjoy. No, the microphone did not catch any of Tim's angry rants. I'm sorry. But needless to say, we'll cover the rest of my news next week, so we can we can move on to. You know what we're really here to talk about, which is Matthew.
0: I'm the only one who hated it. Do we have a? I can't remember.
1: Do we have an intro for this? <laughs> no, I think I just always use like the Mugatu thing. The I don't. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. We can make right. up an intro yeah. right now.
0: No, nah, I'm too tired. I can't think of anything. Hate, it, clever at hate the it.
1: Hate it. 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 Hate it,
0: sounds like roll with it, man, yeah, jazzy all right, so I'm the only one who hate it. This is where we take a critically and or uh box office smash, a critical and or box office smash, and it's a movie we don't we don't like when we're like the only one. I think this one I this this week uh, or this installment isn't going to be quite to the level of true hate for both of our picks. Uh and, and Tim is definitely I think keeping to the true spirit of October and uh, I think he's got a I think I think he's got a, a horror movie planned. But me this movie spoke to me. I was thinking about really good movies. I was perusing the IMDb top 250 and and just kind of thinking about some movies that like cool movies, westerns also and and the cool theme really stuck really stuck to me and Bullet from 1968. It has one of the most iconic car chases in the history of cinema not to mention it is regarded as one of steve mcqueen's finest roles and is heavily regarded as a true-to-form police serial drama in that it really does show a lot of the steps that go into detective work as they would translate in real life not so much streets of san francisco that you see on tv especially from that era There's also a distinct lack of soundtrack and background music for this film. And again, that was a deliberate choice to let the film itself have tension. And it's basically following the exploits of San Francisco Police Department Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, played by Steve McQueen, as he chases down uh, the henchmen and hitmen of a mob informant, who has been murdered shortly before he is supposed to appear for trial. The thing is, is that while I can certainly respect the car chase scene, because car chase scene is pretty cool for me, this movie is just so unbearably fucking slow. It's not quite pianist slow, but it's really, really slow. And I think that while I, again, I respect what they were trying to do and it's not the acting or anything. It's just because of the deliberate pacing decisions that were made, because there is a distinct lack of soundtrack and no real background music to speak of, because they were focusing on procedural issues within the department and and not so much on the characters themselves, uh, because they didn't, in in this in a certain regard, they didn't really need to do that because of letting the story take care of that it just it drags it is it is nearly two hours long, and I swear to you this movie could have been done in an hour and ten minutes, but because they were trying to be so true to life and be as gritty and they it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. It's like the fucking Energizer Bunny of 1968, but it's not cute or clever. I simply really, really do not like this movie. I, I can't quite come on with full-on hate. But if I had to sit through it right now, I think it would push me into hate. So, 1968's Bullet. I'm the only one who hated it. What do you got there, Tim?
1: Yes, as what Matt mentioned, I am trying to stick to... or I wanted to try to stick to the October theme since it is now officially October Halloween season. So this was like a last-minute decision that I really wanted to do this, and so I, in my mind I thought, you know, I I don't have anything right now, but I'm sure by the time we record, I'll choose something. And so... During the workday, I'm kind of thinking about it on and off, and 30 minutes before we record, I'm still really trying to figure out what the hell to do. Because I realize that all the horror movies that I've seen, that I know really well, there are many that either I hate, but everybody else hates it as well. But the ones that everybody really likes, I just don't care for them. But they're still good. Because I was going with... Either let the right one in—the Swedish film, the Swedish vampire movie that came out in 2008, and I think 2011, 2012—they came out with the remake. Let uh, Let Me In. I was going between that one and Eraserhead. Both those movies, technically great, and the cinematography is beautiful. Eraserhead was different and weird for its time, but I just didn't hate it. And then I just kind of fell upon The Exorcist came out December 26th of 1973. It currently holds, well, I guess it will from here on out always hold an 86% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which the general consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is that The Exorcist rides its supernatural theme to magical effect with remarkable special effects and eerie atmosphere resulting in one of the scariest films of all time. Three words that they left out of that little consensus review there uh it would be scariest films of all time at that time because this movie had a great promotional campaign people were getting hurt during the filming of this movie it was like with this movie in the exorcist well i'm talking about the exorcist but this movie in the omen during the production some weird and creepy things apparently happened That's what they say. These were stories that were spun to get butts into the theater seats to prepare people for a thrilling film. You know, it was it was all kind of like a a really good marketing ploy. I mean, granted, you know, maybe some of the stuff was eerie and weird. They totally used that to get people to come and see this movie. And they did get plenty of people to come and see The Exorcist in 1973. Um, according to Wikipedia here, the film earned $66.3 million in distributors' domestic rentals during its theatrical release in 74, becoming the second most popular film of that year, trailing The Sting. Uh, and then it says, after several reissues, the film eventually grossed $232 million in North America, which, if adjusted for inflation, would be the ninth highest grossing film of all time and the top grossing R-rated film Of all time to date, it currently has a total gross of four hundred and forty-one plus million dollars worldwide. And again, it's a technically it's a good movie. I mean, the gore effects, the scare effects, the girl crawling down the stairs—you know, on her doing the back thing, you know, the creepy crab inverted crab walk and the head spinning around. It's an iconic movie and this kind of falls into what we'll be eventually discussing with Nightmare on Elm Street where at the time this was new stuff. This was something. This was this was a movie that was tailored or that was marketed to be tailored towards an audience. And again, this is some nobody's seen an exorcism movie quite like this, where they were trying to make it feel real. But when it comes down to it, the movie is just boring. In between all the good and juicy bits, you just kind of have to sit through a lot of talking. And yes, the performances are lovely. In the movie, of course, you have Linda Blair, but you also have Ellen Bernstein and Max von Snow. Again, excellent performances, but. That, mixed with William Friedkin's direction, mixed with cinematog- the cinematography by Owen uh, Reusman, it it didn't really amount to anything, in my opinion. Because, again, this movie is a little over two hours long. They could have edited it down maybe... Uh, shave off a couple, like, 20 minutes or so. And I think the movie would have been so much better. And this is me watching it years after it was released i mean i think i first watched this movie i wasn't even a young kid i think whenever i was super little i had a chance to watch it but i was kind of scared by it and because i was told to be scared by it i was always told that this was the scariest movie of all time and if i watched it as a child when i didn't really know too much about horror movies i probably would have thought the same thing but now watching it for the first time 10 years ago or so not so much. Good movie, yes, but it could have been so much better. And let's just face it, guys, it just doesn't hold up decades later. So that's the why I'm the only one that didn't like it, not necessarily hate it, The Exorcist from 1973. Cool beans. All right,
0: well, next year, next year... Ugh next episode
1: <laughs> are you going to labor or something is <laughs>
0: are you expecting uh, yeah was definitely not smart to stay up that late drinking with Johnny
1: well when Matt to... says he needs a colonic and he's meaning business for sure uh, and the
0: sad part is is I know I would do it again if invited but uh, yeah, so, so I'm a definitely colonic a joint
1: now. colonic with
0: no being invited to drink with my Friends far away via Skype. Why don't you drink with uh, me on Skype? You never asked.
1: Well, I I thought we, it was kind of like you know we uh it, it's like race to which mountain. We have that really cool hand thing going on, <laughs> and I we can just feel that. Oh man, Tim just really really wants a piece of my wit via Skype. <laughs> And then I'd be uh, like, ooh, I not mad. think
0: you were going to say wit right there. What do you
1: think I was going to say? <clears throat> My, <laughs>
0: I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I think next... Uh, yes, yes, next week. There we go. For episode 148, our plan is to do a Did It Age Well. <laughs> we're going to cover the 80s uh, movie Monster Squad. And we'll see if... Uh, that movie's aged well, where kids take on the horror monsters, the universal horror monsters, to be specific
1: oh no no the, no, the kids and the monsters, I think, are on the same team, right? not at first, oh, oh, spoiler alert for all you living under a rock who haven't seen any popular movie or movies or maybe people
0: who you know weren't who 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 are maybe less than thirty years old who may not have seen the movie yet, because they didn't know it existed until just now.
1: Let's face it, we don't, our show does not appeal to college students no, who I, <laughs> I,
0: I Yes, everybody who, is a, who listens to this show is definitely either a movie fan in and of themselves, so regardless of age, or they're old like me. Anyway, all right, well, without further ado, then, I believe it is time for... Can I ask you something? Certainly. Who gives a fuck what you think? Welcome to Wonderland, Alice. Got your nose. How sweet, dark meat. Freddy no! okay. Krueger is every girl's dream and every girl's nightmare. I'm gonna have nightmares. Oh no! Oh. Freddy is the ultimate nightmare. Freddy's, Freddy's way
1: sociable. He's a party animal. Freddy rocks. It's like Freddy's like addicting, and you,
0: you know it gets better and better, each one. The
1: scariest movie I've ever seen in a long time. I, I don't think I'll sleep tonight.
0: Elm Street, USA. Nice homes, nice cars, and nice kids. Only problem is, these nice kids are terrified by not-so-nice dreams. Sit, children. Your big breaking TV. What the time, bitch? Please, God. This is God. And this week's movies are A Nightmare on Elm Street. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Now, again, we also threw in Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. That is available on Netflix. It is a four-hour documentary. And neither Tim nor I have finished it. But we have been watching it as we've been watching the movies. So that we can have additional... Information and appreciation for what we're watching, and kind of we're using that as a companion piece. So we're not going to be reviewing that proper this week. We will probably throw in a kind of a bonus review on the documentary itself when we have finished watching it. So that might come next week, or it can come the week after. And I guess we should probably just start at the beginning because that's as good a place as any to start. Nightmare on Elm Street, nineteen eighty four supernatural slasher horror film written and directed by Wes Craven. And, of course, the first film in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. This film stars uh, Heather uh, Langenkamp. Truly the Meryl Streep of 1984. Sure. Because, you know, a dingo dingo ate her dream. And... Wait, was that that like an end joke that...
1: That I missed? Whether d- the Dark?
0: You've never seen that movie? Wait, what? what? Dawn of Dark? What? A Cry in the Dark.
1: Oh! Well, I mean, I was... not Dingo Ate My Baby! Well, yeah, You've I never know... Se- I, well, I mean, you don't have to see in A Cry in the Dark to know about A Dingo Eats A Baby! No, Ate My Baby. Well, Ate My Baby Eats A Baby. A baby is getting eaten, let's face it, Matthew. It's a horrible thing. Except, oh, dude. Holy crap.
0: How... I'm I'm like actually a little bit ashamed of you right now. What? I've seen it. I'm not I didn't say that I did not see it. You were you
1: were inferring that you had not seen it. No, I have seen it. I'm just saying that like I I mean, I didn't realize that's what you were referencing right at that moment. Well, <sighs> oh, Without further ado, Mr. Glody, <laughs> I hear you gloating over there, like, ooh, the possibility of me seeing a classic that Senor Movie Man over in Los Angeles hasn't seen.
0: Hmm.
1: Especially coming
0: off of his glorious weekend of double features of Paul Newman and opera watching. <laughs> <sighs> yes. I just, yeah. All too right. much Anyways, bread pudding. Back to the Meryl Streep of 1984. Uh, Heather in Camp, uh, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, uh, Amanda Weiss, Nick Corey, who is actually not Nick Corey. He is uh, uh, Sue Garcia, J S U Garcia. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that, uh, but he was in an interesting thing thanks to this documentary. He was he was initially told that no Hispanic person was ever going to make it in Hollywood, and so he should portray himself as an Italian. And he changed his name to Nick Corey. And so that's why he's in this film as Nick Corey. Ah. And, of course, Robert Englund. And introducing Johnny Depp. This is the film about a young lady who is experiencing nightmares, and it turns out that her friends... ...are experiencing nightmares as well. All of the same person. The evil Freddy Krueger. And... ...it is then... ...trying to deal with Freddy Krueger... ...in the only way that they know how. Which... ...for the most part is... ...don't sleep. (laughs) Now this movie is recognized and far and wide it was a critical success when it came out it was a critical it was a on audience smash when it came out clearly it launched a franchise that has gone over uh, an additional eight movies when we include crossovers and reboots but this movie is 31 years old and as i was explaining to tim I grew up kind of a religious family. I, I was I was seven in 1984. Actually, I'm I'm sorry. I was eight in 1984. No, seven. Right? Three plus four is seven. Thank you. I was seven in 1984. So I I naturally didn't get to go to the theater and see this movie. But I grew up in that era with seeing the posters, with being exposed to the culture. Of course, as you get older, you start having friends who, who got the VHS tapes and everything. And it's always on in the background. It's a part of every Halloween. And it just infects you. I watched the TV series as a teenager. And so I, I have had Freddie ingrained in my movie viewing life since then but as i was telling tim this was truly the first time that i have ever sat down to watch this film start to finish with a truly critical eye and this movie sucks today today it sucks i am not trying to say that it was not important when it came out and i am not trying to deny the themes of the movie that are still present and still relevant to a large degree for teenagers today as the as they transition into adulthood and they have to determine who it is that they can trust and they have to understand what it takes to actually make it through adolescence and also the themes of dreams invading reality vice versa Um, what we do in our dreams what about lucid dreaming all those kinds of things I'm not trying to touch on any of that at all. It's just the the movie in and of itself is fucking terrible. Heather Longenkamp is quite possibly one of the worst actresses I have ever seen. She is so freaking wooden and just does not seem to comprehend or grasp the idea of performance in front of the camera which incidentally thanks to the documentary is something that she noted by stating that she it was she was trying to bring as much of herself into this role as she could instead of developing a proper character as it were so you're saying and that's
1: not how women were like back in the 80s what do you mean I mean, I thought. She, I mean, was she? She's not the accurate representation of every woman in nineteen eighty four.
0: That's a pretty generalized statement.
1: <laughs> was I lied to all this time? I I thought I gotta I gotta look into nineteen eighty four culture, and it failed. It was a joke. I mean, I, I obviously don't think that.
0: Oh, okay, I was I wasn't sure where you were. <laughs> was not sure where you were going there um no but seriously it's just she, she is the centerpiece of the of the crux of what these themes that i was referring to exist on and the, and while what her role represents is neither here nor there the performance has got to be on point for it to truly resonate beyond the time that it was made when she is standing around anybody else she just it's it's like she doesn't understand that she's on a movie set or she's just doesn't have any acting chops that just um it worked for the time i'm glad it worked for the time and i'm glad that everything panned out she is terrible the other thing that is really bad about this movie there are actually two other things that are really really bad about this movie. One is the sound design. I whoever was behind the sound design as far as I'm concerned needs needed to be fired. Uh and and the Foley artists as well. They're just none of these sounds are believable. None. There's just nothing for me that says this is what this sound should have sounded like. And I'm not trying to uh, say that, oh, but what about dreams? No, 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 no. The idea is, is that the sounds that are being elicited are supposed to be scary and are supposed to creep you out when they are truly supposed to be scary. Are you referencing, like, his of...
1: the screeching of his claws on the metal? Oh, then... God,
0: yes, the, all, all that stuff. And, I mean, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but, dear God, the the school bus scene in the in the second at the beginning of the second movie it was like somebody literally just ran their fingers across a fucking balloon i mean you know okay but i don't we're not there yet um (laughs) these so so you've got all of these things that are supposed to instill fear with characters who are not being acted as best as they possibly could, and I'm not. And, and while a little bit is the newcomers uh, or, or the kids who are, when it's obvious when you've got people like Ronnie Blakely on screen, and then she's trying to act around Heather Long, and Kim, it's all of a sudden the gap is just so ridiculous, and it's yeah, it just doesn't 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 do well the other thing that is not that was not good was the way that they tried to bring the i don't know i don't know that camp is the right word but because i'm tired and i can't think of anything else right now i'm gonna i'm gonna lean on that a little bit the campy the intentionally campy side of kruger's character um early on very early on in the film uh, want to say it's about your first introduction to him in a in full form he has these kind of accordion puppet arms that reach out across this alley and that isn't i i it's one of those things that's kind of supposed to simultaneously be silly but still scary and it didn't allow for the character of Freddy Krueger to really develop early in this film. And so it's just kind of comes off as more. uh, Flippant than anything with substance behind this character. And and it's, I'm not trying to bash Robert Englund because uh, especially after you watch this documentary, you come away with so much more respect for this guy. And but it just these things just really all of the seeds of the stuff that were put into this franchise from there just again do not it have not aged well so at the end of the day all of the points that all all of the star whatever rating that i'm giving this is because of its impact and recognizing that it was good at the time beyond that this is not worth going back to see 1.75 1.75 for me.
1: Well, well, well. Mr. Anti See, I thought you were a big fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I, I didn't actually realize that you haven't really sat down and watched them back in the day. Because I, I will admit too that I I haven't I haven't actually watched all of these all the way through. I've seen a nightmare on Elm Street once within the past fifteen years or so. But the only one that I've watched multiple times, I mean, multiple times, it's like three different times throughout 25 years or 24 years, 23 years, however long it's been out now, is uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And that's really all I knew about Freddy Krueger other than than the hype and uh, people reviewing the movie, talking about the movie, reading uh, lists, and seeing him ranked on... One of the most terrifying movie monsters of all time. And I can see why that was the case going back and re-watching these movies, or re-watching these three first three movies in this past week. I can totally see why. Because, like with how I was talking about with The Exorcist, where The Exorcist was a horror movie, but it was definitely more of a drama. So it appealed to various people. You have the horror movie enthusiasts. As well as those that like to go to the movie to see good acting and actually, you know, uh, really good filmmaking from start to finish. Minus, of course, the editing and, you know, the movie could have been better uh, if it was shorter, like I was talking about earlier. And then you have Nightmare on Elm Street, where you have a super original premise. On top of that, it's an intriguing premise and it is something there where in 1984 you really didn't have anything else to compare it to Because a lot of the horror movies that were coming out that were geared towards teenagers were slasher movies where you had the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, you had the Friday the Thirteenth's, you have the Halloween movies where you have people behind masks just going around and and, and cutting up teens that are boning in parks or boning in cars or boning in the woods. You know, they're just dying, they're uh, being brutally murdered and massacred. And so this was a movie that was more terrifying and maybe more fun to go watch. I guess it was more addicting to, to sit through than, say, Friday the 13th or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which were all more gritty and more more edgy. Or edgier, I guess. Where again, Nightmare on Elm Street was more of a fantasy. Um, not as much as Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which we'll get to uh, shortly. But it's definitely more of a fantasy horror than it was a slasher film. And I can appreciate the movie, but there's nothing that holds up now on really any level of the film other than the basic premise and how intriguing that premise alone is and also some of the gore effects. I mean, the famous shot of Johnny Depp... Uh, him getting sucked into the bed and all that stuff, how they came up with that shot, which you'll learn in the documentary, is absolutely fantastic. And it totally worked. It's a super memorable shot and a memorable scene and moment. Um, And there are multiple other deaths that are definitely equally as memorable as that one. So that's really what this movie has going for it now. And I, I know saying that, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it probably sounds like, oh, you know, you're used to those Saw movies where... You know, where you're seeing these very unique, over-the-top deaths, but there's no substance behind it. Well, no, that's not the case for me. I mean, I love movies with substance, but Nightmare on Elm Street does not have that substance that one would speak of, you know. I mean, yes, I do enjoy the Saul movies, but in 20, 30 years from now, I might not enjoy those Saw movies anymore. And in a way, I kind of think that was the case with A Nightmare on Elm Street, these uh, series of movies. Um, It was kind of like the Saw movies. It was something different. It was something fresh. It was something in the pop culture spectrum. I could appreciate it, but again, nothing uh, meaty about it. And none of the meaty bits really hold up now other than the technical aspects of it. The jokes aren't funny, and it's hard for me to think that these jokes were funny in 1984. Like, she's the girl, Heather uh, Matt's new girlfriend, uh, new, you know, new, new movie crush. <laughs> uh, the actress, I think she was 20 when she was in the movie, but she plays a 17-year-old, Nancy, and... Nancy makes this joke about, ooh, that's, that's what 20 looks like. Ooh, God, that looks so old. Oh, ha, 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 she made an old joke. But that's only three years away for her. And on top of that, the actress is 20 years old when she's making it. So it's a lot of, like, really, and also the line de- delivery isn't that great either. So there's a lot of really goofy, uh, stereotypical 80s dumb, actually, well, worse than 80s dumb jokes uh, in this film the the idea itself very unique but it couldn't save all that uninteresting stuff uh and then you have like the ending of the movie which is so ludicrous as well you know while watching the movie the ending doesn't make any sense and for those of you who have seen the movie you all know apparently words can somehow kill freddy krueger But yes, lastly, it is more interesting than your standard slasher fare because he doesn't have any time or space limitations. He's in your dreams, and you're you the victim. You really don't have any way of controlling that. And this is something that they go into more detail in the documentary. Uh, you know, and it's interesting because, like, in that documentary, you learn a lot of the behind-the-scenes kind of Uh, of facts about, like, why it was called Elm Street, for example, why Freddy Krueger, his shirts were that color, or his sweater was that color. That stuff is very interesting, and you can see why people appreciate this film, because you can appreciate a film where a lot of thought and effort was put into it. And this is what this movie definitely has going uh, for it. A lot of thought, a lot of effort, and a lot of creativity from the technical departments, especially, and especially, and in, and in, in on top of that, the heroine as well. I mean, people consider Nancy to be up there with Sigourney Weaver as you know Ripley in the Alien films, as well as Sarah Connor, as being the uh, be, as as being like the strong female that faces her fears and takes takes the bad guy on instead of being the Girl next door who trips and falls you know every two seconds and needs somebody else, needs another guy to come and help her. No, all the guys die in this movie, and she is the only one left so that's another level that is that is pretty interesting, but again, on top of that, the movie doesn't hold up completely nowadays, but there's stuff that you can appreciate, however, unlike Matt, I do see the legitimacy in this movie so i give it three out of five or i, I shouldn't say that i see because i know matt sees the legitimacy as well uh but i guess i uh, seeing that legitimacy was enough for me to just like it so three out of five for the first nightmare on elm street
0: Very good. All right, moving along. We now are going to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. This is a 1985 slasher horror film and a very, very different take on the genre. For those who have seen A Nightmare on Elm Street, you will probably realize that the ending is left in a very um, ambiguous way because there was a not exactly a fight but definitely just a difference of opinion in terms of how a nightmare on elm street should end and the west craven did not really think that this should be something that needed sequels he didn't want to do sequels with it and so he actually had a happy ending ready to go the President of New Line was like, nah, that there's definitely potential here, and there's other things that you could do with this. And so they filmed a mass of different endings and used different portions from each ending to put the ending together of what they actually had. And subsequently, oh look, yes, congratulations, sequels. And Wes Craven in that documentary, Never Sleep Again, he he's like wow that was stupid of me so even he recognizes looking back on it that it was good that they that it did more than just the one film that being said at the time he didn't really want anything to do with nightmare on elm street 2 so outside of his uh, just kind of putting in some notes here and there during the production he w- didn't have anything really didn't have anything to do with it and now we're treated to a new story of a family that moves into the house on Elm Street, and our young protagonist uh Jesse, played by Mark Patton, is having trouble sleeping in the in in the bedroom well of course this uh turns out that it is Nancy's bedroom. And Freddy is in, in, is invading his dreams. While we definitely go through a whole new set of issues, the idea here is that we're now seeing Freddy make a transition from the dream world to actual reality by not just trying to kill his victims in dreams, but actually create a new body to possess. For me, I felt that the acting overall was a step up. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that this is stellar stuff and that these people are the best actors ever. But as compared to, uh, Karen there, uh, I'm sorry, Heather rather. I mean, these people are Oscar winners, but What I but what I really actually enjoyed about this film was that they were finally giving Robert Englund just enough to really start to develop a darker side to Freddy, one that actually allows for a for an actual spectrum of abilities. That you can have. So it can still be that campiness. It can still be somewhat silly and cheesy, one linery. But at the same time, now it's really starting to take root in really being scary. I thought also that they were starting to really be inventive with how Freddy could actually interact both in the dream world and the real world. And it was kind of starting to come together. However, even though I enjoyed those aspects of it, once again, sound design is terrible. It's not as bad as the first movie, but it's still pretty fucking bad. The special effects are better than the first one because obviously they had a, they had a budget this time that they could work with but still subpar even for the day um because again they did have that budget and especially and i'm and i'm really referencing more towards the finale of the film when we're at this plant and everything's starting to be lit on fire and you can pretty much just tell it's sterno gel that they've just rubbed all over everything and you can literally just see it light up along the sterno gel lines and everything like this isn't this isn't uh fooling anybody maybe it did in 1985 i don't know but it wasn't fooling me so uh they have that and then of course there just is a lot of cheesiness there, there really is a lot of cheese, even in some of the performance and stuff. And there has been a lot of talk subsequently, and I'm sure that Tim was going to touch on this too, about some homoeroticism that, is, that has played out. And it it's touched on in the documentary, and I've done a little bit of reading. The The kids in the cast really didn't kind of – they didn't read into it during the filming. Um, but, it's, but it's pretty clear that there are overtones, especially when um, – Jesse finds himself in a gay bar. I mean, that's not an accident. That's not something that is designed to be anything other than uh, kind of an in-your-face nod. Which in 1985 was a big deal. That was a really big deal. This film for me is, uh, is better I'm not going to say it's leaps and bounds better, but it is definitely better than the first one. And while I was definitely taken kind of like I, I I, got what they were trying to do, but it still threw me for a loop that they were that Freddy's revenge is that he comes into the real world and manifests himself by trying to take over somebody. I felt that was something that was kind of weird for something that is supposed to take place in your dreams. And Yeah. At the end of the day on this
1: one though, 3.25 out of 5. So far, Freddy's Revenge is the worst of the first three. The whole movie is composed of setups of dreams just to show Freddy. And and that even amounts to really nothing whatsoever. It very it felt very much like a series of vignettes instead of actually trying to set up the characters and a coherent story. And 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 it just gets really old. Like, there's a little bit of dialogue during the daytime. There's one, like, maybe half-scene. And then it's evening again, you know. And, and it just doesn't make sense. It was really easy. And you can just tell they were trying to go for the easiest thing uh, and, and the most straightforward thing possible. Which, watching the documentary, uh, you you would learn that this movie went through a bunch of issues i guess a lot of issues were brewing behind the camera with the script with the director with the producers i mean a lot there were a lot of issues behind the camera with the first one but at least wes craven is a top-notch professional and he was able to kind of work with the producer of new line but this was going to be the biggest sequel that they would ever end up doing pretty much as in like the part 2 because part 3 does even better than part 2 and part 1 and so they wanted to make sure it was going to be perfect and everybody wanted their own little say so as in producers and the and some of the writers and uh, the director and it just really didn't work out, as you will see in this movie. In fact, any any rules of the Freddy Krueger myth or lore just kind of goes out the window by the end of this film. So again, this movie is composed of setups of dreams just just to show Freddy, which never amounts to anything. It felt more like vignettes instead of actually setting up characters and story. Um, And with all that, you start focusing on... All the negative aspects as what Matt says this movie is quite homo it is there are definitely a lot of homosexual undertones to it everything from the guy you know he does go in the gay bar uh, all there's so many Freudian slips within the movie like the uh, his teacher who is a uh, turns out to be just a, a pervert praying you know wants to prey on the young boy I guess uh, he's alone in his office and all these tennis balls are flying at his face well balls are flying at his face he gets strung up in the showers and he starts getting whipped you know across the ass and you and you see it close up and it's just like oh my god and it's funny because in the documentary all of them are like god how did we really i mean some of them did know but they just kind of hope for the better, I guess that maybe that's not what the movie was really going for. And then I think it was the writer who came up and said, well, yeah, you know, it was a, it was uh, during that time, you know, nothing like this was ever really done. So he thought it would be interesting to integrate that, uh, integrate that social commentary into a horror film. Since a lot of horror movies are based on social commentary at that time. Um, but yeah, like I said, you just start noticing things. Like whenever the lead guy wakes up from a from a from a a Freddy dream, he's always sweating. And he sweats constantly throughout the movie. But then you start to question w- Why he does this, but he's he wakes up, he's sweating, he complains about being hot, yet he always ends up putting on pants in a long-sleeve shirt or sweater whenever he goes out. It it just doesn't make any sense. You know, at least the first movie at least didn't feel too forward with trying to be sexy. You know, uh, and 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 so that this movie and that kind of carries on with this movie as well. You know, it doesn't try to be mainstream. Here, there's a bunch of of, of more like pretty folk in this movie. With the first one, uh, Nancy herself. I mean, she's a, she's an attractive woman, but she wasn't all about boobs you know look at tna and all this stuff and her friends you know yeah the guys were good looking you know but they were more it was more of like a modest look to them more of a real look to them than hey look at us we're sexy people of course following the franchise film kind of steps here you have to have beautiful people with big knockers guys that show off like to show off everything constantly and so everybody in this movie maybe other than the bleed guy are pretty are, are pretty people and a lot of them are shirtless often throughout and that's another thing you just keep noticing throughout the movie like god why did why do did they do this it's it, it's more distracting than adding to anything um unlike the first movie there's only a handful of intriguing kills in this film uh one of the best kills I think out of any of the franchise is Freddy coming out of the lead guy's body in that one dude's bedroom and the friend's bedroom. Oh, it was fantastic. And, like they had to make like so many different molds and casts of that body for that one shot and it was so cool, it was totally worth it. And so it was like little things like that that kept my interest. You know, with the movie. And at the end of the movie, once again, Freddy is defeated by words. The power of love uh, in this particular uh, instance. Uh, but a few things that I do want to mention as well, as I flip the page here. Uh, a lot of stupidity is in this movie. Like, there is a, a a scene reminiscent to Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, where bird, little parakeets start attacking the family before they get so hot or... They just blow up for whatever reason. The birds are apparently a warning sign of Freddy coming for them. You would have never known that if you didn't watch the documentary. If you didn't know that by somebody outside of the film telling you about that, you would have had no idea and the scene would have just come off so goddamn random. And so th- there are things like that littered throughout the movie which are not as forgiving as those things were with uh, Wes Craven's directed Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, what was interesting, though, is seeing the main protagonist a male instead of a female. You know, it makes the chemistry more interesting. And I say the it being more interesting to see the male protagonist, because in movies like this, usually it is a female. Uh, but then even by at the end of the movie, he gets saved by the female love interest. And so that not only... Go, uh, that not only adds more fuel to the uh, homosexual undertones to the film, but that the guy needed the woman to save him at the end. And again, it's interesting. Um, let's see, subtext. This is the top gun of horror films. That's a quote from, uh, from, from somebody. Um, Freudian slips, already talked about that. And there are also so many script issues, as mentioned before, Uh, Like at the end of the movie when Freddy Krueger arrives in the real present world when everybody is awake and at a swimming pool? That's not supposed to happen. Freddy Krueger is not supposed to be in the present time uh, while people are awake. It just goes against the whole Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street mythology, which they try to cover up and fix during the later installments. Um... Uh, one last thing here. Um, and, and there were so many production issues with this film that it, not only with this kind of a shoddy script and not the best times were spent on set but even the, the the special effect crews, who do fantastic work, some of them went off to do Alien during the shooting, or Aliens during the shooting of this movie, they didn't even put their heart and soul to most of the monster-creature effects. Which, whenever shit looks really bad, and whenever shit looks bad, it is blatantly bad with this film. Now you know why. Because they didn't care. And in fact, it's kind of funny to listen to, or fun to listen to, how many people just didn't care during the shoot of this film yet the movie did a qu- uh, apparently quote here 150 times better than the first film the European the Europeans bought into the homosexual moments and undertones to the film which added to the box office success. So with saying all of that, there were a lot of issues with the movie, but I just didn't buy into it as much. Yet the movie is pretty bad, that that in itself is rather entertaining. So I can't help but get to, but to give this movie, oh man, I don't know, maybe two and a half out of five. So bad that it's, inter- it's, it's somewhat interesting.
0: Well, then, that will bring us to A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. This is the 1987 slasher fantasy film, which now introduces characters like Patricia Arquette, Larry Fishburne. (laughs) Guess he wasn't cool enough to be using Lawrence yet. Um, Priscilla Pointer, Craig Wasson, Robert Englund. Um, So now we have someone who... We're introducing now, we're going back to basics. We've got a uh, screenplay that was done by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner. However, there were revisions to that that were done by Frank Darabont and Chuck, Chuck Russell. And so now we're kind of seeing the idea of an actual dreamscape being done to this. But at the same time, we're seeing a... An, a, a way that once again Wes, Wes Craven sees a way to close it, <laughs> like okay, we've got sequels. I see how this is evolving, but we can still turn this into a successful trilogy and just and bring it to a close. The thing here, though, is that while we have kind of stepped up. The acting game in certain in certain aspects and we've stepped up the story game to a certain extent we've also got some really tropey characters in the mix we also have the return of heather longencamp and you know what she hasn't gotten any better like at first i thought she had like she comes up on the screen and her introduction is is kind of interesting at least and then she's got a few lines going and i'm like oh she may have had an acting class in between then and now and then nope it all falls apart it, and it's if you want and if you want to actually see the complete embodiment of how bad this girl is and when we get to, when, in the uh as we come to the, I guess right at the beginning of the third act, we're trying to rescue one of the characters. Patricia Arquette is, is locked in a, in the safe room and she's been sedated. So now time is of the essence and Nancy played by Heather Lungen has to go and and rescue her and get to her because she's been called through the dreams. And, uh, and also some other people that actually paged the doctor who just got fired, but whatever. Um, and so Lawrence Fishburne is there. I'm sorry, Larry is there. He's playing a, an orderly, and uh, by the name of Max. And he's like, "No, you're not getting by." I'm sorry, even you know, with everything that's been going on, uh, people are dying, all this stuff. I I wouldn't let you in, you know. And you just watch that scene, and it's the embodiment of why this girl just cannot act cannot act outside of that though we've also got some other supporting characters and stuff that are kind of lame but the ideas of moving forward and actually having ways of trying to fight freddie within your dreams everybody's kind of got dream powers it was a really interesting idea and i liked that it was bringing it back solely into the world of dreams But being able to also play on certain pop culture things, especially with things like TV um, and the way people look at stuff and interact. I also liked that they were bringing back, they didn't just bring Nancy back, they brought back her dad. And it was really neat to see how she and how his character had progressed in an end or regressed or degressed or however you want to call it from from where he was in the first movie and by the end of the first movie to where he is here. And how all of these things kind of have a really good interplay. There is still some just ridiculously cheesy shit going on, especially with like Dungeons and Dragons boy. That's <laughs> just, just bad. <clears throat> and some just kind of general overacting by a couple of the kids even still this is definitely for me the best of the three that i watched so far freddie is 100 percent on point at it's at this point that we have now seen robert england completely embrace this character and and just really become freddie in a good way not in a creepy off-screen way or anything so at the end of the day, and I did like the ending. I thought the religious, um, the heavily religious symb- symbolisms and stuff that were thrown in at the end, I think were done to just kind of create a solid uh, close to the trilogy. But at the same, uh, but on the same token, uh, was somewhat surprising given the history of the series up to that point. For me, though, I'm giving this one three point seven five. Definitely an enjoyable one. I can't go with, you know, really, really liked it, but it is the best of the first three as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Bring us home, Tim.
1: So, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, who would have known that this is actually a really good one? Not perfect, but it's still really good. This movie works, in my opinion, because of the camaraderie between the characters, the kids, the whole, I mean, within, within the, the institution and whatnot. It just, it just worked. And, God, if you had to think about, like, the, the worst place that you wanted to be or that you could be if you're experiencing, you know, Freddy Krueger haunting your dreams, it would be secluded in an institution. So, for one thing, premise and idea, this movie totally has uh, has that going for it um on top of that you have super memorable moments and really cool set pieces like with the ultimately famous what i mean top top probably top two or top three freddy krueger kills where he grabs the girl and I forget her name but oh you've been looking for your good you've you been looking for your big break Get ready for primetime, bitch. And he just takes her and just slams her face into the TV. And when the guy comes in to, like, check in on her or to see what's going on, she's just hanging by her neck in the TV. And it's just, like, a great picture to it. And it's so creepy. And just the idea of walking into a room and seeing that. Like, what the fuck happened? Like... Either this girl has some issues, or possibly these kids are telling the truth. So there were a lot of really cool moments and set pieces like that that were super memorable and, and incredibly well done. On top of that, the movie feels more like a fantasy, and it has a distinctive feel and look to it than all the other movies. This one is more polished feeling. It is definitely trying to achieve something more on the entertainment scale. And it does achieve for the mo- and it does achieve that for the most part. Um, and there's also humor in it and more wit to it as well. And I do appreciate that. However, on top of all of that, it is still cheesy as shit. There are plenty of cheesy moments, especially at the end where you have the stop-motion Freddy skeleton kind of dancing around a la Harryhausen it doesn't look good it takes away so it takes you out of the movie uh even with like the the super 80s like goonies ending where you know gotta save the kids or the kids are have power and the kids you know are being or are, are able to live out their fantasies one last time before most of them die <laughs> spoiler alert i guess It it just was campy and corny but regardless of all that, this is still a 3.5 out of 5 movie, very entertaining. I could watch this movie maybe once a year and still enjoy it again. It's inventive. It, they were trying to reach for something I think more fun and more fantasy-esque that it just it just had a different feel to it, which I very much liked. So, 3.5 out of 5. Awesome. All right.
0: Well, then, that is going to bring us to the end of the movies. And next, week, next week's movies are going to be A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, and Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. We have a bonus movie for next week as well because it's coming out in the theaters, and it's a pretty big movie, so we thought we should talk about it. The Martian. So we got a bonus movie. It's a four-movie week next week. And with that, I believe it brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir?
1: Spiel on!
0: All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can find them at ravermentation.com and facebook.com, both, slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, still the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at the SLS cast. You can also uh, follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter, at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Robert England, I get to say this. The technologies of convenience are making our sphere of exploration and experience
1: smaller. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk to you again next week.